0: From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. In many English-speaking countries around the world, Shakespeare is a legacy of British colonialism. And it's often fascinating to see how Shakespeare's works reverberate in these cultures so far and so different from his home. Sometimes Shakespeare appears in places you would absolutely not expect. That's the story we're going to hear in this podcast. We call it... Cowards die many times before their deaths, the valiant never taste of death but once. It's an interview with David Skulkvik a Shakespeare scholar who I first met when he was editing Shakespeare Quarterly and working as director of research at the Folger. David grew up in South Africa. The story he tells here is one of those unusual appearances of Shakespeare. He's interviewed by Rebecca Shear.
1: So, David, we should probably start by telling people that this book came about because of a complete coincidence that involved a confluence of the two things you were most interested in in the whole wide world. Can you tell us what those two things are and then uh, tell the story?
2: Yes, certainly. Um, I worked as an English professor in South Africa for a long time, and I was interested in South African prison writing, and there's quite a large tradition of that, with many, many people uh, writing their memoirs about their time in prison during apartheid. But I was actually mainly a Shakespearean, but I kept the two completely apart. And then I went to Stratford-upon-Avon to a conference in 2006. I was walking past Nash House, and it promised Shakespeare the complete works. And I thought, how could you possibly not go and see the complete works. And so I paid a lot of money and I went up rickety stairs to this exhibition. And I must say, I didn't find the exhibition particularly interesting, but one work did catch my eye as I was leaving. Uh, And it was a scruffy volume of Shakespeare, the complete works. And I thought, what's this doing here? And I looked more closely and there was a passage from Julius Caesar. Cowards die many times before their deaths, the valiant only taste of deaths but once. And uh, it had a date, the 16th of December, 1977, written in it. And it had the name N.M. Mandela. And this was a book that, that had, in fact, circulated among the single cell prisoners. Um, Mandela uh, was kept apart from the general Cells together with about 34 others, mostly leaders of the ANC and the PAC, the political organizations that were opposed to apartheid. And one of uh, the people in that group um, had this complete works of Shakespeare and passed it around and asked each of the prisoners to sign their names against their favorite passages from Shakespeare. And well... Here was
1: Shakespeare and Robin Island <laughs> together in one book. This was a major aha moment for you. It was you, a major aha moment, yes. seen the yes. actual Robin yes. Island Shakespeare. Yes. Also known as the Robin Island Bible, I understand. It's also
2: known as the Robin Island Bible. Now, the reason for that is that Sonny van who is a, a, of Indian extraction, was allowed when he first went into the prison, was allowed one book, and he chose the complete works of Shakespeare. Um, and uh, there was a point at which, you know, regulations changed uh, depending on how strict the particular governor was at the time and particular events on the on the island. And Sonny caused some trouble. He was involved in a hunger strike, I think, if, if I'm correct. And this book was confiscated. And one day, as he tells the story, they were summoned to go to the church service. And uh, he had a brilliant idea. And he said to the warder, um, if I'm going to the church service, can I have my Bible back? And the guy said, what Bible? And he said, it's in, the, it's in the warden's office, you know, and it, it described it. And this fellow brought back the complete works of Shakespeare and gave it to him. And Sonny then uh, had some Diwali cards, and he pasted these Diwali cards on the outside of the book. And he pretended that it was either a Hindu Bible, <laughs> and so that's why it's known as the the Robin <laughs> Island
1: Bible. So what he did was he took the book and he basically asked the men— Pick a passage, sign your name. What were some of the passages uh, next to which people put their own names? Well, I've
2: already mentioned Mandela. Of course, of course. And of course, it's, um, and it's, you know, that's what everybody will know. Uh, There's a wonderful theater practitioner in England called Matthew Hahn. Uh, Matthew has, in fact, written uh, a play based on the Robben Island Shakespeare. And Matthew has interviewed a number of the prisoners. And one of the things that has come out of those interviews is uh, some of them feel that, well, you wouldn't really choose a comedy, would you? Because this is serious political stuff. But in fact, if you look at the number of passages that were chosen, uh, a large number were from the comedies. And in fact, a large number from the sonnets. Out of the 34 signatures, five have chosen a sonnet. Um, the most interesting choice um, for me, as far as this is concerned, is the fact that Govan Becky who was a real Stalinist firebrand. So what would you expect Governor Becky, the Stalinist, to have chosen? <laughs> well, he chose, if music be the food of love, play on. Huh. Give me excess of it. Um, so, you know, the, you see this choice and, and, and a whole lot of prejudices or expectations about what people will choose or what their values will be or what would be most important for them under these circumstances – it's challenged, and I think this is one of the things that the book does, is it challenges our conceptions of value, and it also challenges our conceptions of what Shakespeare might mean to particular people at a particular point of time and in the world as a whole.
1: We're, we're seeing a whole other side of these people we might not perhaps see from yes, their political role.
2: Exactly, exactly. Then the other, th- the other choice um, with regard to the comedies, which I find absolutely fascinating, is that three people chose passages from As You Like It. But it's interesting to see which passages they actually chose. Um, And the most striking passage is the very, very opening of the play in which Orlando complains to Adam about the way in which his brother has treated him. And he says, as I remember Adam, it was upon this fashion bequeathed me by will but a poor thousand crowns. And as thou sayest, charged my brother on his blessing to breed me well. And there begins my sadness. And what he complains about is the fact that his brother has dispossessed him and is treating him poorly. Now, that is a reading of that particular comedy, which um, is extremely prescient. It sees in the comedy a struggle over inheritance and possession and relationships amongst brothers, which are deeply, deeply political.
1: Now, do we know whether they had the time to sit there and read the plays, oh, yeah. then make their decision? They, did. they, they
2: did. did. Whether they actually did that or not oh. is another matter. Huh. I mean, this is what is so intriguing about, about the book is that, especially in my position, trying to make sense of those choices, is I really don't know what made them choose particular passages. You know, Matthew has asked a number of people, and what is very interesting about that is he presented... Uh, three of the prisoners with the passages that they chose. And and you know they chose them because their signatures are against those passages. And all three of them said, no, I didn't choose that passage. I couldn't possibly have chosen that passage. Really? (laughs) Now, this is fascinating because what it indicates to us, I think, is that these people at a particular point saw in Shakespeare's words— some kind of mirror of themselves. So you're sitting in your prison cell, you read the play, and it seems to speak to you. Thirty years later, under a completely different set of circumstances, you're no longer the same person. And so you don't see yourself in the mirror of the words that you've actually chosen. And I find it really, really fascinating reflection on the nature of human identity. So what I've done with this book is I have, in fact, treated it as a kind of communal and individual unconscious. So, f- for example, many of the people who ch- who chose passages from the Robben Island have written memoirs about their experience on Robben Island. Now, the problem with the memoirs that come out of Robben Island is that they tend to tell a communal story which fits in with a particular kind of political grand narrative. And I think what the Robin Island Shakespeare does is it allows us to see a different story emerging in the unconscious, which, of course, has been forgotten or repressed or whatever for whatever reason.
1: When you say the unconscious, when you mention the unconscious, I think about the title of the book, Hamlet's Dreams, where did that title come from? Well, yes, i
2: I was <laughs> this is really just a practical problem I had, because I, I, I had been in America, people don't have inaugural le- lectures, and I was trying to figure out they'd been badgering me for five years and saying, "You must give this lecture," and I couldn't figure out anything. And I then decided, it was just after I'd seen the book in Stratford, that I needed uh, I needed some kind of hook on this book. I just didn't want to just talk about the signatures themselves. And what struck me was Hamlet's statement that he could be king of infinite space, even if I were bounded in a nutshell, were it not that I had bad dreams. What Hamlet's saying there is that in the imagination, even though you're totally imprisoned, you could be totally free. But of course, he's haunted by bad dreams. And then that is connected to his sense of Denmark being a prison. And so I thought that I would explore the affinities and differences between that sense in Hamlet of being imprisoned in uh, an extremely repressive political system and the signatures in the Robben Island uh, Shakespeare by actual prisoners. And what I focused on there was, was a sense of identity that is either individual or communal. So if you recall what Hamlet is constantly trying to do is he's trying to find a self that is deep within, that passes show. Okay. And these are but the suits and trappings of of show. And the experience of the prisoners on Robben Island tends to be the exact opposite. The constant emphasis is on community and communal identity. And I try to show that, you know, real experience, real identity, real a real sense of selfhood has to negotiate its path between these two extremes of being communal and being individual. That, in fact, as Hamlet tries to find that which is within himself, that is the core of his identity, he finds himself more and more and more trapped. It's like putting yourself into solitary confinement to try to find out who you really are.
1: I want to talk more about that, that idea of of the collective, of the community. Would it be silly to say that Shakespeare united these prisoners?
2: If you go, if you go and look at at all the uh, the memoirs, uh, the memoirs will all state that Shakespeare was a binding force for these prisoners. Well, let's ask who these prisoners were. On Robben Island, there were thousands of prisoners, many of them illiterate. Uh, the Robben Island Shakespeare was passed uh, among 34 highly literate elite prisoners. So the general blanket claim that Shakespeare united everybody on Robben Island can't possibly be true. <laughs> and, you know, it's very interesting. It, 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 the people say this because we are so used to thinking that Shakespeare is this unifying, universal, unifying global presence or factor. And I think it does us well just to step back a little and, and look at that critically and to ask, you know, does Shakespeare perhaps divide people? You know, in some ways, if you have a look at the passages that are chosen in in this book, um, you can actually notice divisions. Now, one of the interesting passages, it's really, really fascinating. I'm going to read you a couple of lines from it. Please do. And I'm going to ask if anybody can tell me where it comes from. Therefore doth heaven divide the state of man in diverse functions, setting endeavor in continual motion, to which is fixed as an aim or but obedience. For so work the honeybees. And then there's a whole thing about what honeybees do and all the rest of it. And at the very end, you have four lines. As many fresh streams meet in one salt sea, as many lines close in the dial's center, so many thousand actions once a foot end in one purpose and be all well born without defeat. I would give a prize to anybody who can tell me where that comes from. I took many
1: in. a Shakespeare course right. in, in college and I'm, I'm coming up short here.
2: It's the Archbishop of Canterbury speech at the end of the first scene of Henry, the, Henry V when the Archbishop uh, is trying to persuade Henry that he has a right to go to war to France. And almost all productions cut it because it is – you know, you've already get, had, had the whole thing about – Uh, salic law and stuff. You don't want more of this stuff. But Sibosisu Bengu, who became uh, the minister of education in Mandela's cabinet, chose that utterly obscure speech. Why? Why? Well, the (laughs) only reason that I can think of is that at about the time that this book was circulating amongst the leadership, a new radical young group of prisoners entered Robben Island. And this came after the 1976 uprisings amongst the youth in South Africa, which, which just put the whole struggle against apartheid into a completely different gear. This was a completely different generation, and it was a generation that had decided that it was going to defy its own elders. These people came into the prison. They looked at what these old men who'd been there for 15 years were doing and what they were suffering, and they decided to make the prison ungovernable. They opposed the philosophy of people like Mandela and and his comrades. Now, you would have thought that a revolutionary would not choose a speech which is about obedience and people doing the same thing, right? I think that what struck a chord in him, and I think he read the whole play, saw the speech, and in the context of these rebellious young men in the prison, he chose a speech in which an authority figure – is telling others that the only way to win is through obedience and harmony.
1: Right. Speaking of rebellion, you say that in the end the prisoners in Robin Island ended up owning the prison. That that they they won in a way. In a sense,
2: yes. What happened is that through a, a gradual process, um, through which of of resistance. Through Um, you know, across the board, different kinds of resistance, and a gradual decision by the regime to improve conditions on Robben Island. Things did improve enormously. And as the restrictions were lifted, people had much more chance to talk freely, to read, um, books were made available. They actually turned the island into what they regarded as the university. And many people who went in illiterate came out with two degrees, for example. Jacob Zuma, who's present president of South Africa, was on Robben Island in one of the communal cells. He was illiterate, and in fact, he was taught to read and write on Robben Island. And one of the, cho- one of the pieces that was chosen, uh, which of course it just seems so obvious now, um, in the, the, the Robben Island Shakespeare is by... Oh, by Billy Nair, who chose Caliban's statement, "This island's mine," by Sycorax, my mother, which thou takest.
1: That one from the Tempest, and and,
2: and it's it's from the Tempest, and it's a it's an en- enormously prescient reading of the of the Tempest. If you compare, you know, at about that time, I was at university, and and we were being taught uh, the Tempest as a study in. Um, forgiveness and nobility and so on. Uh, And so we were ignoring completely the colonial uh, foundations of that text. And here Bellina sees in Caliban's claim, this island's mine, a voice that he can see as his own. And of course, the claim is not just for the island, the Robben Island that they're on, but for South Africa as a whole. And of course, in 1994.
1: Well, David Skulkweig, thank you so much pleasure.
0: David Skolkvek was interviewed by Rebecca Shear. His book about the Robin Island Shakespeare, titled Hamlet's Dreams, is available from Continuum. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once was recorded and edited by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It is part of the Shakespeare Unlimited podcast series, which comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.